This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, Counterspin, Tom Hartman, MarkFiore.com, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Majority Report, Comedian Lee Camp, and Johan Hari. And a note of caution today that austerity programs in the mirror may be closer than they appear. When I was in uh, France, they happened to have an election, uh, in my honor, obviously. Uh, they must have known that I was going there on vacation. Uh, and uh, guess what? In my honor, the socialist won. <laughs> uh, Francois Hollande? <laughs> I gotta stop. <laughs> anyway, he was, of course, the socialist candidate, and he came out victorious. This was uh, gigantic news because, really, this is a, it might be a defining moment for uh, which direction Europe goes in terms of whether they're going to do more austerity or uh, they are going to go be in favor of stimulus instead. Uh, and uh, obviously Sarkozy had gone in an austerity direction with Angela Merkel, the leader of Germany. Now throughout Europe we have many uh, elections going in the opposite direction, saying, hey, you know what, austerity doesn't seem to be working. And they're right about that. Now oftentimes you'll see in the coverage, uh, you know, poo-pooing of election results, like, oh, you know, the electorate in Greece, they're so irresponsible. They don't understand. They need to do austerity. And the same goes for per- perhaps France and, and even Germany now has taken an interesting direction. I'll tell you about it in a second. Uh, but in reality, the electorate might be absolutely right because austerity has not worked in Europe. Wherever they've tried it, it has hurt the economy. It has not helped the economy. And if you hurt the economy, well, then it's hard to collect tax revenues. It's harder to balance your budget. It's hard to get out of a financial mess. So it might mean that the electorate actually knows exactly what it's doing. And perhaps democracy does work. So now along those lines, after the uh, socialist victory in France, we have more news uh, out of Greece and uh, Germany in this case. In Greece, well, they're at a political stalemate. You know, they also had an election and uh, it was split in many directions that you, as it usually is. But the... Uh, you know, the most interesting part of the polling in Greece, uh, which is leading to their uh, deadlock, is the far-left group Syriza, uh, if they had an election today, would come in first, which is shocking. They're coming out of nowhere here, and they're definitely against the austerity programs. Now, they claim that they could stay in the euro anyway, and the rest of Europe claims otherwise, saying, hey, you know what? Yeah, you know what? If you uh, if you don't go along with the program here outlined, uh, what which is what got you the 130 billion euro bailout in the first place, and you don't keep paying those bills, well, then you're not going to be in the euro, and you're going to go back to the drachma. I, you know, it's a little stunning that we're having a conversation about going back to the drachma, but uh, but there it is. And so, which direction is Greece going to go? Well, no one knows, and right now. It looks like they might get out of the euro because they, the government cannot agree. Syriza, who's, which is now so powerful because of the polling, uh, says they're not going to even participate in the new round of talks, which has led to a whole new panic in the markets as to whether Greece is going to leave the European Union and the euro altogether. Then meanwhile, uh, they had elections in North Rhine-Westphalian federal state. And Mach schnell! Merkel's party has... Uh, taken another loss and uh, they apparently had an embarrassingly heavy defeat uh, and uh, center-left social democrats and the greens have done much better by the way my favorite party in the world the pirate party got close to eight percent of the vote Arr. 
sure, yeah, they're kicking ass. I, I mean, that's, that's a significant percentage of the vote in, in those elections going to the Pirate Party. By the way, I, what I love about the Pirates is, one, uh, they're associated with Pittsburgh, which is a favorite city of mine. No, is, is that they're for open Internet. So I, I totally agree with them on that. I love how much people care about that. Number two, on some of the other issues, they haven't even bothered to come up with a position yet. And they're getting a significant chunk of the vote when they're like, yeah, other issues like the death situation in Europe, we'll get to later. But we know we're for an open internet. Yeah, pirates for the win, arg! But Merkel for the loss! But overall, in Germany, she's still very popular, uh, or popular enough, certainly, so that it's not necessarily a referendum on her government. Uh, but this was the most populous state in Germany. So massive upheaval in France. Uh, the bottom line is uh, that they are trending more towards stimulus spending, less towards austerity, and, uh, and the markets are not reacting well to that. But you know what? If you're always panicked about the markets, then the markets, so-called markets, control your democracies, and you don't. And at this point, it's basically democracies throughout Europe standing up and saying, you know what? I think we're going to take back charge here. And some say it's not going to work out well. But uh, you know, I think that overall, they're right that austerity measures have not worked. And they certainly haven't gotten Greece in any better position. So it's time to start some, uh, something new, and that's certainly what they've done in France. Looks like what they're heading towards in Greece. Uh, I'm not positive that that new direction is going to work out. But I know the old direction didn't work out. So let's try something new and see what happens. So viva la France, viva la Hollande, viva la Greece. If there's a lesson to be learned from the elections in Greece and France, it's that voters don't want any more of the budget-slashing, wage-cutting austerity that is supposed to help them get their economies in order. Left-leaning economists have been arguing throughout that these austerity measures would hurt, which even supporters say is part of the point. But even more important than that, critics stress that the supposed cure won't actually help much. But the idea that austerity works is deeply ingrained in corporate media. So much of the election coverage sounded as if voters just don't know what's good for them. The Washington Post called the results a, quote, powerful backlash against the German-led cure for the region's debt crisis, close quote. French socialist Francois Hollande, the New York Times said, wanted to stress growth and jobs, quote, which would challenge the German medicine, or at least try to dilute it. Close quote. Well, cures in medicine should be good for you, right? On the CBS Evening News, Scott Pelley told viewers, quote, France and Germany got other European countries to slash their budgets to solve their debt crisis. But the incoming French president has vowed to unravel that deal. Close quote. Well, gee, unraveling a solution to a crisis sounds like a bad idea, right? Yeah, she is beautiful, but she don't need a thing. 
As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. European stocks are falling. In fact, the U.S. stock market, I haven't looked at it in the last hour or so, but uh, it was down most of the day, about 100 points or thereabouts. And investors around the world are mm, keeping a close eye on Greece. Everybody says, oh, Greece, this is, this is the nexus of the whole thing, as the euro crisis is entering a new phase. On the heels of the elections that ousted the pro-austerity government in Greece. Keep in mind, you have you had uh, Papandreas, yeah, was the was the uh, president of Greece, and and he actually called for you know when when the crash happened back you know sometime back when the crash happened he said well you know the banksters want us to lay off government employees cut benefits, cut pensions, like cut Social Security payments, cut Medicare, you know, I'll use American language, cut Social Security, cut Medicare, cut Medicaid, cut everything, cut unemployment benefits, lay off government employees. And he said, we should at least have a vote on this, right? We should have a referendum. And the banks just said no. And he was gone in 24 hours, replaced by the guy who was the former head of the Greek Central Bank. So anyhow, so, so now you've got this pro-austerity government in Greece. And new, as a, as a result of this, I mean, Greece is like bleeding. So new anti-austerity parties have so far been unable to form a coalition government. Greek President Carlos Papolias is, now he's the president, not the prime minister. The prime minister is the guy I was talking about just a second ago. But this president, the president is desperately trying to bring together party leaders for a meeting today in hopes of finding a coalition government. But the far-left Syriza Party, S-Y-R-I-Z-A, Syriza Party, and then their leader, a guy by the name of Alexis Tsipras, T-S-I-P-R-A-S, is refusing to attend any meeting that includes other parties who support austerity. So neither the pro-austerity parties nor the, which is, principally the conventional parties, nor the anti-austerity parties, which is the far left and the far right, won enough seats in the last election to form this coalition government, meaning that the president's probably going to have to call for a new round of elections in the next week or two. And if so, in all probability, the far left Syriza party and probably the far right party, I think it's called Golden Dawn, will pick up, and it's basically a neo-Nazi party, which Greece has never seen before. I mean, they were occupied by the Nazis. But these two parties, they, because they are both saying no to austerity, they're going to pick up more seats in the parliament, making an anti-austerity coalition government a very real possibility just before Greece runs out of money as early as next month. And when Greece grows broke 
If the new government refuses to sign on to the IMF and the EU-backed austerity and bailout plan, then Greece will default and likely be forced out of the Eurozone. So, boom! <laughs> you guys are out of here! Or Greece is actually saying, no, we're, we're taking our marbles and going home. The problem that they have, the, the reason why it's going to be difficult for Greece, unlike Argentina, well, I'll get to that in a second. Anyhow, thanks to the worldwide economic meltdown and these, this trickle-down austerity response, the whole Greek economy has been in a depression for at least the last five years. And so now maybe there could be an insight, although it could get very painful. Meanwhile, in Germany, Chancellor Angela Merkel saw her conservative party get crushed in state elections in North Rhine-Westphalia, the biggest state in Germany. It's the, it has the same population as the Netherlands. It's huge. This one state. It could be a country. In fact, it used to be a country. It used to be called Rhine-Westphalia. In fact, it used to be two countries. One was the Rhine region and the other was Westphalia. Merkel has been leading the charge for austerity around Europe, but she now finds herself vulnerable because the support for her party has dropped to 26%. Now, it's pretty damn hard governing when only a quarter of the people like you. This is the worst result that any political party has seen since World War II. So everywhere you look, the supporters of trickle-down austerity are getting hammered by the voters. And the simple fact of the matter is that austerity has never worked anywhere. The IMF, the International Monetary Fund, pushed it for decades in South America until governments like Argentina. I was down there in 2001. I, you could see, you know, they, they, they just said, that's it. We are not going to take any more IMF money. And by the way, we are not going to continue this insane austerity that the IMF is shoving down our throats. IMF was, you know, they, they said, take a leap. Now, Argentina had their own currency. But it was pegged to the U.S. dollar. They had a, the Argentine peso. But they said, to hell with this. We're not going to peg the peso to the dollar anymore. We're going to disconnect it. We're not going to pay back the IMF. We're going to declare bankruptcy and stick them with the debt. And we're going to go our own way. The result for Argentina was both a recovery of national sovereignty. They got their country back. And, uh, and their economy came back. It was this robust economic rebound. So now Greece and Spain and Portugal and Italy and Ireland all, you know, got whacked by their banksters and got whacked, whacked by the by this international crash. And and frankly, in my opinion, this is my take on this. It's time for them to just say no to the international banksters and the European Central Bank. Pull out of the euro and go back to their own currencies. The Greek government right now should be should be running the printing presses, they should, they should dust them off and fire them up and start printing drachmas. Now, if they do that, there will be a shock for very wealthy people, for big-time investors, particularly in Greek bonds, and for banks in Europe and America who are going to take the loss of Greece saying, hey, we're bankrupt, we're not going to pay back our bills. But it will give the working people of Greece their country back. And largely those working people have already figured this out. Which is why the Greek elections are freaking out the banksters who, like most libertarians, think that capitalism and money are more important than democracy or the lives of working people. Which brings us to the United States, where the same battle is being played out. Democrats are pushing for stimulus and growth through things like rebuilding infrastructure and extending unemployment benefits. What are the Republicans doing? Oh, we need to have austerity! They want a punishing EU-like austerity 
by stopping government spending, cutting unemployment benefits. You see, the, I, I've mentioned a couple of times in the show so far, you know, 100,000 people in California, 200,000 people across the country lost their unemployment benefits on Saturday. Most of them didn't know that they were about to lose them. And this was all because the Republicans insisted that if the, if the unemployment benefits got extended back, I don't know, two, three months ago, six months ago, whenever it was, when they renegotiated this in Congress, that the 99-week be cut back to 79 weeks. Now, this in the face of the time, I mean, this is at the time that a lot of people had to hit 99 weeks and they've lost everything. So anyhow, the Republicans want to cut unemployment benefits, they want to cut Medicare, they want to cut other social safety net programs. So for us, as Americans, let's hope that Americans figure out what the Greeks already get. That when the conservatives like Paul Ryan and its bankster buddies who will take him out to dinner and buy him a $300 bottle of wine, that when the conservatives like Paul Ryan and his bankster buddies are happy, it's because you're getting screwed. The average working person is getting screwed. In a nutshell, presents Assaulting Austerity or Why Events an Ocean Away Matter to You. From left to right to really right, across Europe, the battle of austerity rages with leaders and governments falling everywhere, from the Netherlands to Greece to France, as voters say no more to cuts. It all began as a surefire solution to Europe's economic woes, which were blamed on government spending and too much debt. Never mind the banks. It was the fault of those dastardly government spendaholics. So belts were tightened, lips were stiffened, and bootstraps were relied upon as government spending was cut and safety nets snipped. People who did things for or sold things to the government were out of luck as demand fell in an already weakened economy, which led to a weaker economy and more unemployment. But there was a solution. Belts were tightened, lips were stiffened, and bootstraps were relied upon as government spending was cut and safety nets snipped. Which, unfortunately for people who did things for or sold things to the government, led to falling demand and more unemployment in an already weak economy. Clearly, more austerity was needed. So belts were tightened, lips were stiffened, and bootstraps were relied upon as government spending was cut and safety net snipped. Which, for some odd reason, weakened an already weak economy. Budget-cutting austerity stars like Ireland became economic basket cases, leading thousands to flee. As Europe double-dipped into recession and depression, banks here at home remained dangerously exposed to the predicament across the pond. But never fear, America's wise fiscal leaders and deficit hawks in Congress have a solution. Belts will be tightened, lips will be stiffened, and bootstraps will be relied upon as government spending is cut and safety nets snipped. Gutenacht and Zutalor. Even other lives have changed on call. 
I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. This is the garage at Mitt Romney's La Jolla home, and there are big plans for it, including a sophisticated car elevator called the Phantom Park that will take his cars and lower them into a 3,600-foot basement. And tonight, we talk to the man who's going to make that happen. The Phantom Park lowers into a subterranean garage. The nice thing about this is at the grade level, it actually just looks like a regular garage floor. When you hit the button, a whole other car comes up. Infrared lights that surround this is an option. If someone would come too close, it would shut down. Brad Davies created the sophisticated car elevator. His shop is in downtown Escondido, but he's installed them in homes around the world. We just recently installed one in London. We have one in New Zealand, one in Norway. Clients include Harrison Ford and Britney Spears. Now, presidential hopeful Mitt Romney wants to install a phantom park in his La Jolla home. But first, he'll bulldoze the 3,000-square-foot home and build one that's 11,000 square feet. Plans 10 News first told you about back in November. The basement alone, 3,600 square feet, and it'll have one of these. It's exactly what he's getting. To store his cars. I love local news. I love local news. I mean, let's, let's be honest. Being president of the United States is not exactly a blue-collar job. All of the people who have been president in modern times have at least ended up being very well off. But Mitt Romney is a different breed of cat. Mitt Romney's reported net worth is more than the last, more than the last eight presidents combined. Now, his wealth is nothing bad. It's not a morally good thing or a morally bad thing about Mitt Romney. It's just a fact about him. But it is a strategic conundrum for the Romney campaign how to keep the candidate relatable, how to create the sense among voters that he might have some idea what the average American's life is like, despite his vast and lifelong wealth. I mean, they're not going to change who Mr. Romney is, but given his own mega wealth, how he talks about the issue of wealth and who has money and who doesn't is a really important and sensitive subject for that campaign. I'm not concerned about the very poor. Rick, I'll, I'll tell you what. <laughs> 10000 bucks. <laughs> $10,000 bet? I'm not in the betting business, oh, but I'll, okay. I'll okay. show you that. I drive a Mustang and a, uh, and a Chevy pickup truck. Anne drives a, a couple of Cadillacs, actually. I like being able to fire people who provide services to me. Mr. Romney actually said in an interview today that he regrets saying that last one. He regrets saying, I'd like to be able to fire people. And, and yeah, you could see why he might regret that. But, but if he is trying to appeal to voters who aren't rich like him, who are maybe even on the lower end of the economic spectrum, Mr. Romney has to worry not just about what he says, but what he does and what he would do in terms of policy. This man who would be the wealthiest president in modern American history by a mile, his economic plan would raise taxes on poor people. 
on purpose. It would single them out on purpose. Quote, on average, households making less than $20,000 would see their taxes increase by more than 60%. People making more than a million dollars would get tax cuts, averaging 15%. That's Mitt Romney's tax plan, and it's on purpose. It is not an unintended consequence. I think it's a real problem when, when you have half of Americans that are almost half of Americans that are not paying, uh, paying income tax. That's the real problem. The problem Mitt Romney is trying to fix when it comes to poor people in America is that they have too much money and the government should take some of their money away. It's a real problem. This is the thing in Republican politics right now. I mean, it sounds crazy, right? The problem with poor people is they have too much money, so government has to fix that by taking some money away from the poorest people in the country. It sounds crazy. But this is a thing right now among Republicans. I think it's abysmal that the bottom 51% do not pay income taxes. Republicans are supposedly uniformly anti-tax. Except they're not anymore, and it's not getting much debate, but Republicans are pro-raising taxes now on people who have the least money. They're not just ignoring them, they're overtly going after them and raising their taxes on purpose. Democrats haven't even really bothered to rebut this, because I'm not sure that Democrats are broadly aware that this is happening. But almost everywhere that Republicans have control right now and can set policy, they're not just talking this way, they're acting on this. Earlier this year, Republicans in South Carolina introduced what they called their tax reform bill. It would raise taxes on the poorest families in South Carolina and cut taxes for people who are well off. Because, you know, poor people have it too easy. After the Republican takeover in Wisconsin, Republican Governor Scott Walker introduced a budget to cut taxes for everybody in the state except for poor people. Scott Walker's budget would raise taxes on the poorest people in Wisconsin. This week in the great state of Kansas, that state's Republican Governor Sam Brownback signed a bill into law that cuts taxes for the richest people in the state and raises taxes on poor people. This is amazing. I mean, the Republican Party has this anti-tax reputation, but they are only pursuing that agenda for rich people. You would think that they might just be ignoring people, ignoring poor people, but they're not ignoring the poor. They are actively seeking out ways to make poor people more poor using the tax code. So uh, according to the Government Accountability Office, <clears throat> Reuters has found that the number of long-term unemployed workers over the age of 55 has doubled since 2007. About 55% of jobless seniors, or 1.1 million, have been unemployed for more than six months, up from 23% or less than 200,000. Uh, overall, more than 40% of the unemployed have been out of work for more than six months. Now, remember the implications of, I mean, this is why we should be dropping the age of Social Security eligibility for the next two or three, four years. Take those people out of uh, the workforce, take them and others who are w wanting to retire at that time out of the workforce. Get these people who are now undoubtedly putting off health care decisions, waiting to get on to Medicare, 
when all of a sudden the cost of those people is going to be more because the longer you wait to deal with a medical problem, statistically, the worse it gets and the more expensive it is to treat. But because of billionaires like Pete Peterson and the people that they can buy in both parties, in every think tank, on every uh, media outlet, we're not going to get anything that comes closely, uh, remotely close to the idea of a solution. Because they're not interested in solving the deficit problem or the problem of, uh, of increased uh, health care costs. No. This is an ideological war, which essentially can be boiled down to rich people must be better in some fashion. Otherwise, they wouldn't be rich. And so the rest of you, you don't deserve a paid vacation. That's basically what it's boiled down to. Hi, I'm Sam Cedar. You may know me from my shows on Air America Radio, from filling in for Keith Olbermann on Countdown, or even, God forbid, my directing shows like Comedy Central's I'm With Busey. If not, you should really get to know me. Not personally, of course. I think we'd both find that uncomfortable. But if you're a fan of the best of the left like me, I think you'll enjoy my daily live show and podcast, The Majority Report, at Majority.fm. It's a daily dose of political news, analysis, and guests like Chris Hayes, Robert Reich, Digby, comedians like Mark Marin, Janine Garofalo, filmmakers like Morgan Spurlock and Lucy Walker, and on occasion, between my rants on raising taxes, ending wars, and decorporatizing our democracy, I can be mildly amusing. I'm unbought and unbossed daily on the Majority Report at Majority.fm. There's a kind of war going on in the Republican Party over the question, what do Republicans care about more, reducing the deficit or cutting taxes? See, these two things are actually in conflict, because in order to reduce the deficit, Republicans need to make deals with Democrats. They need to get that grand bargain. And in order to cut deals with Democrats, they're going to have to put revenues on the table. Democrats will not be willing to do major spending cuts to programs for poor people and seniors if the Republicans simply say, no, sorry, the rich are not going to pay even a dime more. Those Republicans who are solely concerned with taxes have a leader. They have a general, a powerful, unelected enforcer who has achieved an almost mythological status in Washington. He is the second most famous Grover in America. He is Grover Norquist. Since creating Americans for Tax Reform at Ronald Reagan's behest back in 1985, Norquist has been responsible more than anyone else for rewriting the dogma of the Republican Party. The Republicans won't raise your taxes. We haven't had a Republican vote for a income tax increase since 1990. And this was your doing? I helped. Yeah. It began with the simple idea of getting Republicans all over the country to sign an oath called the Taxpayer Protection Pledge, promising their constituents that they would never, ever vote for anything that would make their taxes go up. Uh, Speaker Gingrich's tax pledge back in uh, 1998. I'm and once they signed the pledge, Grover Norquist never forgets. The more signatures he's collected, the more his influence has grown. I think to win a Republican primary, uh, it is difficult to imagine somebody winning a primary without taking the pledge. 
That was CBS's Steve Croft talking to Grover Norquist back in November. Since then, in Indiana, Republican incumbent Senator Dick Lugar faced a primary challenger. That primary challenger's name was Richard Murdoch. Now, Senator Luger was one of the Republicans who had refused to sign Norquist's pledge, and so Norquist endorsed Murdoch. And last week, Murdoch defeated six-term Senator Dick Luger in the Indiana Republican primary. Now, we don't know what Grover Norquist's impact on this race was. After all, he only endorsed a challenger a week before the primary. But still, every time there's another entry in this guy's win column, his no taxes pledge gets a public relations boost. Republicans become more afraid of it. It becomes more powerful. Now, that pledge, Grover Norquist's pledge, says that not only can you not raise a tax rate, but even if you close a tax loophole, so you close a loophole for oil or for jets, that money can't go to the deficit. It has to go back into a tax cut, or else Grover Norquist will consider that a tax hike. For years and years and years, Norquist was an unchallenged force within the Republican Party, a unilateral kingmaker. Over a thousand lawmakers have signed his pledge. It was practically de rigueur among Republicans. At least it was until about a year ago, when arguably the most conservative Republican in the Senate broke rank. But here, here's, but if, if people's taxes go up in some way, it would appear to be a violation of the pledge that you signed with a well-known Americans uh, for Tax Reform Taxpayer uh, Protection Pledge. Uh, this is the group you signed the pledge with. And, and the second piece of this is that uh, you, you vowed to oppose any net reduction or elimination of deductions and credits unless matched dollar for dollar by further reducing tax rates. If taxes end up going up in some capacity, would you not be in violation of that pledge? Well, I think which pledge is most important, David, is the pledge to, uh, to uphold your oath to the Constitution of the United States or a, a pledge from a special interest group who, uh, speak, who claims to speak for all of American conservatives when, when, in fact, they really don't. A lot of people thought Coburn was crazy for launching this fight. But increasingly, he's not alone. In Politico today, Kate Nocera reports that, quote, a small but increasingly vocal group of freshman Republicans are publicly rejecting the idea that they are beholden Grover Norquist Americans for tax reform pledge. There aren't many of them yet. Norquist notes that only six House Republicans have refused to sign the pledge. But Politico reports that, quote, other freshman members privately told Politico they had been struggling with the pledge. It's always been understood that you don't want to be the only House Republican to break the pledge. But you can be one of many who jump to make a deal. If everybody is a heretic, then nobody is. And it seems that more and more Republicans might be mentally preparing themselves to make that jump down the road. Most of us, at the heart of it all, are looking simply to gain happiness out of life, right? Now, some people might argue, no, life is about adventure, or life is about dunking your head in a bucket of tiramisu and eating your way out, or life is about getting out of a hot shower and gently pressing your crotch against the cold porcelain of the bathroom sink. 
But in each of those cases, you do those things because they bring you happiness, and that's why you seek them out. So we all want happiness. We build societies that are supposed to help you pursue happiness. And yet, at least 21 million people are depressed each year in the United States. And that number nearly doubles if you include anxiety. And there are similar numbers in many other countries. But one country, Bhutan, has taken an unusual step to achieve happiness for their people. They've forced everyone to wear t-shirts that have a photo of Tom Hanks with a baby deer on them because everybody loves those two things. No, I made that up. What they've actually done is switched from measuring their country by gross domestic product to instead measuring gross domestic happiness. And it makes sense. If a country's wealth is low but everyone is living la vida loca, then it doesn't matter how much money they have. On the other hand, if a country is rich but everyone is quietly praying a meteor lands on their head just to end it all, then what good is all the money? And it's worked. Bhutan is now one of the top ten happiest countries. And it's the only poor country in the top ten. They did it. They did it. They cracked the code. Someone has cracked the code to happy society. This is huge news. Jesus Christ, everybody grab a shovel and start shaping the world like Bhutan. Gross domestic happiness. Here we come, right? Right? Who's, who's coming with me? Right? No. No? We're not. We're not. We're not doing this. And this is when we see the dark secret of America and many other countries. They're not set up to make sure people are happy. They're set up to make sure everyone is consuming and working, buying and slogging away at jobs we hate so that we can afford the products that will take our minds off the jobs we hate. Day in and day out. And I realize not everyone hates their job, but a load do. And the heads at the top of our society have set it up to enslave most people in a life of debt, a life of indentured servitude, in order to enrich a handful of individuals to a point that would make a pharaoh blush. The depression rate in the U.S. could grow to 80% and it wouldn't matter as long as the people keep working and buying and the top gets richer. However, I don't want to act like this is all bad news. If the depression rate did grow that high, I bet the government would give us a coupon for a handful of Zoloft and a free t-shirt of Tom Hanks with a baby deer. So let's work on making our gross domestic happiness as low as possible because I don't know about you, but I want that f***ing t-shirt. I've been having a sweet dream I've been dreaming since I woke up today Starring me in my sweet dream Cause she's the one makes me feel this way And even if time is passing me by a lot I couldn't care less about the dues you say I got for the 80% of you who listen to this program via the enhanced version of the show, which supports chapter markers, the following clip will include visual elements. In the 2010 elections, the elections that gave us Republican House Speaker John Boehner instead of Democratic House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, there was one chart more than any other that pretty much summed up what happened on Election Day and why. These were the heavyweights when it came to outside spending that election cycle. These were the 10 groups that spent the most money on that election that year. Six of the 10 groups spent big time on the right, and they were led by the corporate-funded U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which was far and away the biggest spender that year. Almost all of the groups spending on behalf of Republicans in 2010 were corporate-funded groups like that, business groups. The only major spenders on behalf of Democrats that year were unions. That was it. And they only made up three of the top ten spenders. 
So yeah, one by one individual campaign donations by normal humans are nice things, but when you're talking big money in politics, the stuff that adds up really fast and really makes a determinative dis difference, you either have to be a politically motivated billionaire or you need to be an organization. Big money in politics comes from corporations who disproportionately support Republicans and from unions who disproportionately support Democrats, from organizations. Republican supporting corporations are totally dominant, right? Their only competition supporting Democrats are the unions. And, and that means strategically, if you are somehow able to get rid of the unions, to take them out of the mix, then you're able to get rid of the Democratic Party's ability to compete in the big money part of elections. The only thing you'll have left is the corporations spending hand over fist for Republicans, and they'll win every election every time. Over the last half a century, union membership has plummeted across the country. It's gone from about 39% of salaried employees in the 50s to less than 12% now. But even as union membership has waned, there is one place where it's still going strong. Most of the people who are in unions these days are in public sector unions, the unions that represent people who work for things like state and local governments. Private sector unions have taken a beating over the last few decades, but public sector ones are still doing okay. And so, Republican legislators all across the country have all gotten religion all at the same time about the importance of killing off public sector unions. The most high profile among them, of course, is Republican Governor Scott Walker of Wisconsin, who with the stroke of a pen wiped out 50 years of union rights in the state of Wisconsin. Wisconsin was the first state in the country to recognize union rights for public employees generations ago. That's where these rights were born, but Scott Walker got rid of them. Scott Walker did not campaign on getting rid of those rights, but once he got elected, he said he had to. He said he had to kill union rights in Wisconsin to save the state's budget. When the unions said yes to all of the financial concessions that he asked for, and he still wanted to kill them off, it became clear that it wasn't about money. It was not about the budget. He wanted to get rid of union rights in order to get rid of unions altogether. If you get rid of unions altogether, then there is no one funding the other side. There will be no one funding the Democrats when business funds the Republicans. You get rid of union rights, you thereby get rid of unions, you thereby game the whole state so Democrats cannot compete in the big money part of elections ever again. Pull that off and Wisconsin didn't just go all red in 2010. Wisconsin will be all Republican, all red from here on out permanently. Democrats will never recover. Don't take my word for it, take his. Any chance we'll ever get to be a completely red state and work on these unions oh, yeah. and become a right to work? Well, we'll in fact, the what big thing we do to help you. Well, we're going to start in a couple weeks with our budget adjustment bill. The first step is uh, we're going to deal with uh, collective bargaining for all public employee unions. Because right. you divide and conquer. How do we become a completely red state? The first step is the public employee unions, then divide and conquer. That's what Scott Walker calls it, divide and conquer. Killing the unions is the strategy for turning Wisconsin red, not just for now, but for generations to come in an irreparable way. This is about partisan politics. It is about destroying Democrats' chances of competing with Republicans. It's about eliminating the only source of support for Democrats that can compete with the Republicans' corporate support. It's not about some year's budget. It's not even about jobs. Since he wiped away union rights in Wisconsin, Scott Walker has racked up the single worst jobs record in the entire country. It is not about jobs. It is not about the budget. It is about making Wisconsin permanently Republican. That is what this is about. And Republicans are trying this everywhere. 
I mean, in Ohio, they were able to do a recall not of the governor, but of the law stripping union rights in Ohio that the Republicans passed. That law, when it got put up for a recall, got recalled by more than 20 points in November. In Wisconsin, they're not recalling the law, they're going to recall the governor. A recall that happens in less than two weeks. Now, because this is about money in politics and how badly the corporate-funded Republican side wants the chance to run unopposed from here on out forever, it will not surprise you to hear that the Scott Walker side is outraising the Democratic side more than 25 to 1. 25 to 1 against the Democrats in this recall election that will essentially decide if Democrats ever get to really compete with Republicans in elections again. I mean, if I, if I were the Republicans, I'd spend 100 to 1. I'd spend 1,000 to 1 for a chance at that. Are you kidding? That's the brass ring. And so far, their spending appears to be working, even though the polls are very, very close. The latest polling, I think this is important, shows that all the Republican ad spending is, has had an effect. 91% of Republican voters in Wisconsin say they are absolutely certain to vote on June 5th. Only 83% of Democrats and independents say the same thing. That's what advertising does. That's what that kind of money does. This race in Wisconsin is the most important race in the country before the presidential election. June 5th. Republicans think they've got it in the bag. And if they do, they are on their way to a permanent structural advantage over the Democratic Party for which there is no repair. There's no way to undo it. And that will affect every race in every partisan election on every ballot from the race for dog catcher on up to the race for president. Republicans think they have it in the bag. It is less than two weeks to the vote in Wisconsin. And at this point, the Democrats should be fighting for this like the existence of their party depends on it. Because it does. This is today's Best of the Left activism update. So for those of you in Wisconsin, don't forget that the recall election for Governor Walker is on June 5th. It is coming right up. All indications are that it will be a close election, so every vote counts, as much of a cliche as that is. Uh, for those of you not in, in Wisconsin, you should definitely be calling every Wisconsinite friend you have, reminding them to vote. And here at Best of the Left, activism czar Lauren found a really cool system to help you do just that and phone bank your Wisconsinite friend. So check out bit.ly, this is a bit.ly link, B-I-T dot L-Y, bit.ly slash recall walker. And that will tap you into a virtual phone bank that's been set up by the AFL-CIO. And this virtual phone bank is unlike any I've ever heard of before because it allows you to use your personal Facebook account to find your own friends who match the voter rolls in Wisconsin. So you're actually contacting people you know in the state to encourage them to vote rather than just strangers. So, so it's incredibly, you know, it's much more effective that way as well. And not to mention, you might even have more friends in Wisconsin than you realize based on, on Facebook that you wouldn't have thought of uh, in the first place. Now, of course, if your Wisconsinite friends are conservatives, then you should still call them, but you should invite them to like come visit you far away from Wisconsin on June 5th, you know, but just because you'd like to see them. You know, it's been a while, right? So again, that website to visit is a bit.ly link, B-I-T dot L-Y slash recall walker to get plugged in. Stay tuned as we explore other ways to affect change for this and other pressing causes in future editions of the Best of the Left Activism Update. I want to talk today about 
one of America's great mysteries, Ayn Rand. So I find this really hard to think through. This is a person who was um, an amphetamine-addicted author of sub-Dan Brown potboilers, who in her spare time wrote lavish torrents of praise for serial killers and for the Bernie Madoff-style embezzlers of her day. She opposed democracy on the grounds that the masses, her readers, were lice and parasites who scarcely deserved to live. But, and this is the weird thing, she is still one of the most popular writers in the United States, selling 800,000 books a year from beyond the grave. She regularly tops any list of books that Americans... Uh, say have most influenced them and since the great crash of 2008 her writing has had another benzedrine rush as rush limbaugh hails her as a prophetess and paul ryan the architect of the republicans budget plans said that she's the reason that he went into politics with her assertions that government is evil and that selfishness is quote the only virtue end quote She's the patron saint of the Tea Parties and the Death Panel Doomsters. So this is what I want to figure out. How did this little Russian bomb of pure immorality in a black wig become an American icon? There were these two biographies around last year, Goddess of the Market by Jennifer Burns and Ayn Rand and the World She Made by Anne Heller that tried to puzzle out this question, showing how her arguments found an echo in the darkest corners of American political life. But... For me, when I read them, those books actually work best on a level I didn't expect. Because what they are at their heart is a thrilling psychological portrait of a horribly damaged person who deserved the one thing she spent her life raging against. Compassion. Her original name was Alyssa Rosenbaum, and she was born in the icy winter of Tsarism, not long after the failed 1905 revolution ripped through her home city of St. Petersburg. Her dad was a self-made Jewish pharmacist and her mum was an aristocratic dilettante who loathed her three daughters. She was always telling them she never wanted children and she kept them only out of duty. So Alyssa became a kind of surly, friendless child. In elementary school, her class was asked to write an essay about why being a child was a joyous thing. Instead, she wrote, quote, a scathing denunciation of childhood. And it began with a quote from Pascal that said, I would prefer an intelligent hell to a stupid paradise. But obviously the Rosenbaum's domestic tensions were dwarfed by the conflicts that were raging outside. The worst anti-Jewish violence since the Middle Ages was brewing and the family was terrified of, of being killed by mobs the whole time. But actually it was the Bolsheviks who struck at them first. After the 1917 revolutions, her father's pharmacy was seized in the name of the people. For Alyssa, who had obviously you know, grown up surrounded by servants and nannies, the communists seemed to be, at last, the face of the masses, a terrifying robbing horde she'd always been afraid of. In a country where five million people died of starvation in just two years, the Rosenbaums went hungry too. Her father tried to set up another business, but it too was seized and he declared himself to be on strike which is going to be significant in a minute. The Rosenbaums knew that their angry, outspoken daughter would not survive under the Bolsheviks for long, so they arranged to smuggle her out to their relatives in America. Just before her 21st birthday, she said goodbye to her country and her family for the last time. She was determined to live in the America she had seen in the silent movies, the America of skyscrapers and riches and freedom. 
She renamed herself Ayn Rand, a name she thought had the hardness and purity of a Hollywood starlet. She headed for Hollywood, where she set out to write stories that expressed the philosophy she developed, a body of thought she said was the polar opposite of communism. She announced that the world was divided between a small minority of supermen who are productive and, as she put it, the naked, twisted, mindless figure of the human incompetent who, like the Leninists, try to feed off the productive people. He is, quote, mud to be ground underfoot, fuel to be burned, end quote. And it's evil to show kindness to these lice. The only virtue, she said, is selfishness. She meant it. Her diaries from that time, while she worked as a receptionist and as an extra, lay out the Nietzschean mentality that underpins all her later writings. The newspapers were filled for months at the time in LA with stories about a serial killer called William Hickman who kidnapped a 12-year-old girl called Marion Parker from her junior high school, raped her and dismembered her body, which he sent mockingly to the police in pieces. Rand wrote great stretches of praise for him, saying he represented, quote, the amazing picture of a man with no regard whatsoever for all that a society holds sacred and with a consciousness all his own a man who really stands alone in action and in soul. Other people do not exist for him, and he does not see why they should. End quote. She called him, quote, a brilliant, unusual, exceptional boy, end quote, shimmering with immense, explicit egotism. Rand had only one regret. As she put it, a strong man can eventually trample society under its feet. That boy, Hickman, was not strong enough. It's not hard to see this as a kind of political post-traumatic stress disorder. Rand believed the Bolshevik lie that they represented the people. So she wanted to strike back at the people through theft and murder. In a nasty irony, she was copying their tactics without realising it. She started to write her first novel, We the Living, in 1936. And in the early drafts, her central character, who's a kind of crude and obvious proxy for Rand herself, says to a Bolshevik, I loathe your ideals... I admire your methods. If one believes one's right, one shouldn't wait to convince millions of fools. One might as well just force them. She poured these beliefs into a series of deeply weird novels. She takes all kind of flabby staples of romantic fiction and peppers them with political ravings and rapes for the audience to cheer on. All these books have the same core message. Anything that pleases the Superman's ego is good, Anything that blocks it is bad. In The Fountainhead, published in 1943, a heroic architect called Howard Rourke designs a housing project for the poor, not out of compassion, of course, but because he wants to build something mighty and grand. When his plans are slightly altered, he literally blows up the housing project, saying the purity of his vision has been contaminated by evil government bureaucrats. He orders the jury to acquit him, saying the only good which men can do one another and the only statement of their proper relationship is hands off. For her longest novel, Atlas Shrugged, which was written in 1957, Rand returned to a moment from her childhood. Just as her dad once went on strike to protest against Bolshevism, she imagined the super-rich in America going on strike against progressive taxation and said the United States would swiftly regress to an apocalyptic hellhole if the Donald Trumps and Ted Turners ceased their toil. The abandoned masses are variously described as savages, refuse, inanimate objects and imitations of living beings picking through rubbish. One of the strikers deliberately causes a, crane, a train crash 
and Ram makes it clear she thinks the murder victims deserved it, describing in horror how they all supported the higher taxes that made the attack necessary. Her heroes are a cocktail of extreme self-love and extreme self-pity. They insist they need no one, yet they spend all their time fuming that the masses don't bow down before their manifest superiority and worship it. As her books became mega-sellers, Rand surrounded herself with a tightly policed cult of young people who believed that she'd found the one objective truth about the world. They were required to memorise her novels and slapped down as imbecilic and anti-life by Rand if they asked questions. One student said, There was a right kind of music, a right kind of art, a right kind of interior design, a right kind of dancing. There were wrong books which we should not buy. Rand had become addicted to amphetamines while writing The Fountainhead, and obviously her natural paranoia and aggression were becoming more extreme as they pumped through her veins. Anyone in her circle who disagreed with her was subjected to a show trial, and that really is the right word, in front of the whole group in which they'd be required to repent or face expulsion. Her secretary, Barbara Weiss, said, I came to look on her as a killer of people. The workings of her cult exposed the hollowness of Rand's claim to venerate free-thinking and individualism. Her message was, think freely, as long as it leads you into total agreement with me. In the end, Rand was destroyed by her own dogmas. She fell in love with a young follower called Nathaniel Brandon and had a decades-long affair with him. He became the cult's number two man, and she named him as her intellectual heir, until he admitted he'd fallen in love with a 23-year-old woman. As Burns explains in her books... Rand's philosophy taught that sex was never physical. It was always inspired by a deeper recognition of shared values, a sense that the other embodied the highest human achievement. So to be sexually rejected by Brandon meant he was rejecting her ideas, her philosophy, her entire person. She screamed, you have rejected me. You've dared to reject me, your highest value. Next time someone refuses to have sex with you, I really recommend using that line, by the way. She never really recovered. We all become weak at some point in our lives, so a thinker who despises weakness will end up despising herself. In her 70s, Rand found herself dying of lung cancer after insisting that her followers smoke because it symbolised man's victory over fire. And the the studies showing it caused lung cancer were, she said, just communist propaganda. By then, she'd driven almost everyone away. In 1982, she died alone in her apartment in New York City, with only a hired nurse at her side. If her philosophy is right, if the only human relationships worth having are based on the exchange of dollars, this is a happy and victorious death. Do you think even she believed that in the end? Rand was broken by the Bolsheviks as a girl, and she never left their bootprint behind. She believed her philosophy was Bolshevism's opposite, when in reality it was its twin, Both she and the Soviets insisted that a small revolutionary elite in possession of absolute rationality must seize power and impose its vision on a malleable, imbecilic mass. The only difference was that Lenin thought the parasites to be stomped on were the rich, while Rand thought they were the poor. I don't find it hard to understand why this happened to Rand. I feel sympathy for her, even as I know she would have spat it back in my face. What I do find hard to get my head round is that there are people... Large numbers of people who see her writing not as psychopathy but as philosophy and urge us to follow her. These are some of the most important figures on the American right. These are some of the people who caused 
the crash, Alan Greenspan was, you know, a real, was one of her disciples. Alan Greenspan who was the chair of the Federal Reserve all through the boom years in charge of a lot of the deregulation. He invited Ayn Rand to be there in the Oval Office when he was sworn in in the 70s. You know, he, he was her disciple right into, you know, he was older than I am now. What is it in American culture that Ayn Rand was drilling into? Unfortunately, neither of these equally kind of thorough and readable biographies offer much of an answer to this, which was, in my mind, the only great question about her. I think it might be that Rand expresses with a certain kind of pithy crudeness an instinct that courses through all of us sometimes, which is, I'm the only one that matters. I'm not going to care about any of you anymore. But she then absolutizes this in a kind of amphetamine, benzodrine-charged reductio ad absurdum, by insisting that that feeling, which is a natural human feeling, is the only feeling worth entertaining ever. This urge exists everywhere, but why is it supercharged on the American right, where Rand is regarded as something more than a bizarre joke? In a country where almost everyone believes, wrongly on the whole, that they are self-made, perhaps it's easier to have contempt for people who didn't make much of themselves. And Rand taps into something deeper still, the founding myth of America is that the nation was built out of nothing, using only reason and willpower. Rand applies this myth to the individual American, him or herself. You made yourself. You need nobody and nothing except your reason to rise and dominate. You can be America in one body, in one mind. She said the United States should be, as she put it, a democracy of superiors only, with superiority defined by being rich. Well... We got it. As the healthcare crisis has shown, today the rich have the real power. The vote that matters is expressed with a checkbook and a lobbyist. You know, Americans get to vote only for the candidates that have been pre-funded by the super rich, by the 1%, and they receive the legislation that they have approved. It's useful, if daunting, to know that there's a substantial slice of the American public who believe this isn't a problem to be put right a morally admirable situation. We all live every day with the victory of this fifth-rate nature of the mini-malls. You can see how Alan Greenspan carried this philosophy into the 1990s. Why should the Superman of Wall Street be regulated to protect the lice of Main Street? The figure Ayn Rand most resembles in American life, I think, is L. Ron Hubbard, another kind of crazed, pitiable charlatan who used trashy potboilers to whip up a cult. Unfortunately, Rand's cult isn't confined to Tom Cruise and a rash of Hollywood dimwits. No, her cult and its ideas and its impulses have, by drilling into the basest human instincts, captured one of America's major political parties. Jay, my name is Michael. I'm from California. Dan from Chicago called in and, and uh, told his story about coming out as a homosexual. And I just wanted to call in because I'm not gay myself, but I, I, just, I have extremely, extremely powerful feelings about this. Like whenever I hear stories about, you know, gay teenagers or, or of any age, people in the gay community being beaten or attacked or, you know, pelted with stuff or committing suicide or anything like that, it always reminds me of 
you know, when I was in school and learning about the civil rights movement and you see pictures of, you know, black school children walking into white schools after the desegregation of schools and just like, you know, being verbally harassed and people throwing shit at them and, and obviously treated terribly. And if you look in the background of those pictures, you see a lot of other students just kind of standing around like, you know, watching kind of disinterestedly like, Oh, something's going on on campus. Like, what's that? Oh, there's some black kids in there. There's people throwing, you know, rotten fruit or whatever at them. And they stood there and they didn't do anything. And I always think about it. How do those people grow up? Like, those people are still alive. Who knows how many people in the United States who saw that happening and they just stood there and they didn't do anything. And I always wonder if those people ever became kind of enlightened about how their views about black people were wrong. Uh, the reason that I feel so strongly about the the gay rights movement is because, you know, I'm heterosexual, but one day I'm going to get married. My marriage is going to be one man, one woman, and we're going to have children. And eventually one day my children are going to have children. And, you know, my kids and my grandchildren someday will ask me why people were not allowed to get married and why people were attacked and why people, you know, teenagers were committing suicide because of something like their sexuality, I don't really know what I would say. I mean, they that's just the way it was back then, you know. That was the rule of law that, was, that we lived under. But when they ask me, and I'm, I mean, I, I know there's just like the sun's going to come up tomorrow. When they ask me what I did to change it, I want to have something to say. I don't want to be one of the people that just stood around and said, well, you know, it doesn't affect me, so I'm just going to, you know, let this injustice continue and let people be, be relegated to second-class citizens because of their sexuality, which is something that they can't change any more than they can change their skin color. So, you know, I just wanted to call and tell you that I'm really glad you include things like Dan's message because it was, you know, it's really powerful. It's powerful to hear people have such kind of extreme experiences and to hear something like Dan's voicemail and then to turn around and say, oh, well, your whole, your sexuality is just a choice. Like, you just made the choice. Like, gay people can just change their mind. It just, you know, you can't do it. You can't listen to somebody like him and his story and still say something as stupid as that. That's all. That's all I wanted to say. And as everyone else tells you, keep up the good work, my friend. Hey, this is Dan from Chicago. Uh, a less uh, tearful call this time. Um, I'm I'm totally out now to friends and family, and it's been great and really life changing in so many ways for the better. I just wanted to share how I gathered the strength to come out. So this voicemail is for any teens or other closeted people like I was. The first way was by listening to other coming out stories. One example that comes to mind, and I don't mean to promote other podcasts on this podcast. Uh, but there is a WTF with Mark Marin episode from January 16th of this year where comedian Todd Glass comes out publicly for the first time. Uh, it's a really great listen, and it's funny, and it's tear-jerking all at the same time, and it was really helpful. The other way was by being involved in an Internet forum designed to help closeted or questioning people find peace. Uh, it's called EmptyClosets.com, and there are many great gay, bisexual, and non-cisgendered people there to help with advice or whatever questions you may have. But the reason I, I did attempt suicide was not from being bullied directly. It was from a climate where gay was considered 
stupid or not normal. You know, I, I mean, I wasn't politically active when I was 14, so I didn't hear all the anti-gay rhetoric back then, but I did hear fag uh, and that's so gay and other anti-gay words and phrases being used all the time, and that drove me uh, in a dark period of my life. Uh, this climate, I think, comes from vocal anti-gay public figures influencing people to not care about gay people, to not be educated on gay people, or, you know, in some extreme cases, to hate gay people. And it's up to us and podcasts like this and other independent news sources to expose these people and make their positions known and how their positions affect the country and individuals both directly and indirectly. You know, the, the goal shouldn't be to wipe out anti-gay speech, but rather to recognize that we as a country and a society are better than bigotry. And it will save lives. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So as we're talking about economics today, I, uh, I, w- I want to bring up something that I heard of you know, a few few weeks or a couple of months ago. Uh, that just struck me as interesting. So in the last, you know, six months, we've been sort of introduced to the Occupy movement, uh, the, the mantra of the 99% and the 1% and how they're, uh, you know, enriching themselves at the expense of everyone else. And actually my brother mentioned to me something that just, you know, it seems obvious, but just hadn't occurred to me. Uh, he said, you know, if you take the broader perspective, America, is effectively the 1% of the entire world. And so, you know, as we are here in America asking for redistribution of wealth, you know, a, a greater sense of equality, uh, to reach a, uh, you know, a more stable and, and more equitable life for everyone. And, you know, we sort of make the argument that everyone would be better off if there, there wasn't this horrific wealth divide. And so, of course, you very easily extrapolate that to the rest of the world, and America is, is living easily as the 1% as so much of the rest of the world is you know, in absolute poverty. And at the same time, as we talk about this, it's very, very normal to hear progressives talking about the, you know, the, the terrible nature of outsourcing jobs and you know, sending our money overseas rather than keeping it here. And... It strikes me as a you know sort of a paradox, but I also don't think I'm smart enough to understand all of the intricacies and nuances of of the subject. And does outsourcing jobs or you know sending money overseas like that really redistribute wealth, or is you know is, is the one percent actually nationless and they're all just international uh, companies that prey on everyone you know anyway like i don't i don't actually have a, a strong or clear opinion on this but would love to start a conversation about it and hear from some of you really smart people who may have some thoughts and opinions to bring some uh, some clarification or just different ideas on this subject so let me know what you think
Again, the number to call in if you're interested, 206-202-3410. So that's it for today. I just want to thank everyone who supports the show, either through memberships or one-time donations to help keep the show going. Uh, that is incredibly important. So thanks to everyone uh, who does that or even considers doing it and may do it one day in the future. Of course, everyone can help support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and by spreading the word of individual clips that you particularly like. You can do that through the social networking links in the show notes on the blog. To stay tuned into the show between episodes, you can hook up with us on Facebook and Twitter. You can also donate your Facebook and Twitter accounts to us. That is linked up at the website, and uh, it's all explained there and helps us spread the word that way. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always listed in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Just a fun.